This is the Human Action Podcast with your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Human Action Podcast. This week, I am hosting solo. Whenever there's nuclear tension in the world, the president of the Mises Institute, he's scrambled in the jet known as Rothbard One, and so that's why he can't be with No, of course not. Jeff has things going on right now. I'm hosting this week, and I'm glad to have our friend, Toby Baxendale from the UK. Uh, Toby, thanks for being able to join us. It's a great pleasure, Bob. Thank you for inviting me on. Now, uh, you know, we, we know of you as the uh, entrepreneur and founder of the Cobden Center, but can you just give people who aren't familiar with you just a little bit of background on your, your general bio? Well, I, I think you've done a uh, fair justice there. I mean, I, I created um, the largest uh, fresh fish and, and meat wholesaler in the United Kingdom servicing the food service sector from university from nothing, and I sold it 12 years ago. Um, that's my entrepreneurial sort of claim to fame. The, the connection with the with the Austrian school, uh, just for just for listeners, is um, I uh, I was um, inspired by Margaret Thatcher in the um, early early eight, mid eighties really, and I hosted as a young conservative an event at the Polish Institute in Hammersmith, and this was of course before the fall of the Berlin Wall. And um, an old Polish war veteran uh, came up to me and said, "I must introduce you to this." fabulous author, um, Friedrich Hayek. Um, so when I was 16, I had a copy of um, Amon Butler's um, introduction to Friedrich Hayek. And then I said to my mother, Mum, I'm going to the LSE. I want to study Austrian economics. Um, then age 18, I end up at the London School of Economics in the economics faculty. Um, and of course, when I'm inquiring about this amazing individual Hayek, who I've now read an introduction about, um, they divert me over to the politics department. Um, and um, then, then you, you sort of inquire about his economics and everyone sort of scratches their heads and no one really knows. And bear in mind, this was 1988. He, only, he left in 1951 and he did win a Nobel Prize for the work okay. that he did uh, the 20, 21 odd years at the at the LSE. And anyway, cut long story short, I got to the bottom of it. Um, wrote to serfdom and beyond was the only thing that the people at the LSE were then interested in, um, in, in the politics department. And um, the, the economics had completely bypassed and forgotten anything to do with Hayek. And then when I left, and like all, I'm sure, you know, the university you've gone to, they, they, um, uh, they hit you with, um, you know, requests for money after you've left, you know, after a few years, you know, will you come back and uh, support us and this, that and the other. And I said, oh, I'd love to support um, any um, any teachings of Austrian school economics. And um, then the lady the uh, in, in the fundraising department, I mean, in fairness to her, um, she wasn't an economist, but she was married to an economist. Uh, she wrote back in German uh, to me saying, I'm delighted you're interested in Austrian economics and the country and this, that, and the other. Yeah. <laughs> and then I went to speak to her yeah. and it became clear that she was thinking I was some right. kind of obsessive about yeah. the, the nation of Austria. Yeah. Unemployment rates of Vienna in the 20th yeah. century. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I had to explain, and anyway, um, Tim Besley, certainly now Sir Tim Besley, um, an, econ an economist, I, mean, I wouldn't class him as an Austrian school, but he's certainly very receptive um, to Austrian school teachings. He, he kind of got it, and then we set up the um, Hayek Distinguished Teaching Fellowship, 
which still exists today, actually, as I'm glad to say. So there is some kind of legacy. And then, interestingly, out of the woodwork, you know, come these closets of Austrians who've been hiding under the, uh, you know, under the books in various mm. departments in the LSE. And they all say, oh, yeah, I'm really interested in that, actually. And uh, some of the governors as well on the court, on the court, um, the governing body have also indicated that. So in a very small way, we're trying to get a resurrection uh, go, go, going there of, uh, of Hayek and some Austrian teaching. So that was my connection. And that's when I reached out to, so that's when I became connected with you guys at the Mises Institute, because in the mid-90s, uh, you were the only guys um, really out there who I could reach by the worldwide, the emerging worldwide web. Um, with um, any, anything to do with the Austrian school. But it was only, I just happened to look up this guy, Ludwig von Mises, who, who, who Hayek used to speak, used to speak quite eloquently about. And then boom, you arrive at the Mises Institute. Mm-hmm. And that was the connection. Okay, well, that's great. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I think I have my history down right that Hayek was invited to give lectures at the LSE. And that was sort of like the, the English speaking world's first exposure to, you know, what we would call Austrian capital theory and business cycle theory is a response well, to Keynes. Well, there's a there's a slight episode before that, because um, Lionel Robbins, mm-hmm. um, who was an English, an English economist um, at the LSE at the time, had translated um, Mises's human, uh, not human action, sorry, um, money bank. Um, theory of money and credit? Yeah, theory of money and credit. Yeah, so he he was, I think, he was the the first person, or he's either the first person or the second English uh, tra- tra- translator of that work, and that introduced it into um, in, in, into the English speaking world. Okay, so again, you're you founded or co-founded the Cobden Center, mm. and named after Richard Cobden, of course. So you know, for people who maybe the name means something, can you just explain who he was historically, and then why? you decided that that was the person whose name you wanted to use for this center? Well, Rich, Richard Cobden was, is, well, it is associated with the Corn Law reforms. And the, and the Corn Laws were, were basically a, um, how should we say, it's a restrictive practice that the aristocrats uh, of this nation, who were the prime landowners of the time, these in the, in the 1800s, um, to hold prices really, really excruciatingly high. Uh, and kind of like an OPEC, type arrangement but for but for basic foodstuffs um so that the poor um certainly the poor could you know, literally like buying buying a loaf of bread was paying paying for your mortgage equivalent is um it, it, it extreme and um in the rise of um the start of the industrial revolution this new mercantile class um was rising and um it was you know demanding representation um, it was it was uh, getting you know more electoral um, presence, um, and Richard Cobden, and then later John Bright, um, became the catalysts uh, really for the fight against that kind of entrenched privilege, and they managed to um, you know get the Corn Laws abolished, um, and that's a wonderful thing. Um, and you know, to you imagine if we could abolish the, the OPEX of the world and all, all the cartels and, and 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 bad practices that are designed to benefit the producer at the expense of the consumer. So that resonates with me. And A, he was also, uh, you know, an industrial, self-made industrialist, mm-hmm. calico, uh, printer, um, cotton, 
um, and up in Manchester. It was up in Manchester because that's the really rainy part of the country, um, which you need a lot of water for their processes. And that was the start, of course, of the Industrial Revolution. Um, and, and he was um, a radical, a liberal radical. So, um, you know, the whipping system wasn't so formalised as it is now today. So although he's classed as a liberal, he was really a radical. Mm-hmm. And he's not really... so. He's not really owned by any uh, political class. No, no, the, the Tories can't say, oh, he's our man. The Liberals can't say, he's our man. The Socialists can't say, he's our man. But they all can, they all can say, um, we respect you know, immensely what was done. The Socialists, because it's, you know, the poor were alleviated. You know, the free marketeers like myself, because you know, he just you know, literally collapsed the whole um, entrenched privilege system. Um, for the benefit of um, the free market and the industrial revolution that happened, um, I suppose to- Tories now who've become more more liberal and free market can sort of endorse him, but they would have, he would have been the absolute enemy um, because they were attacking you know all, all the aristocratic privileges. So he's not really owned by anyone. So mm-hmm. if you're going to set up an institution, it's a bit like you know Mises isn't really you know owned by any political class or political party or faction. Um, in any significant, well, I suppose you could say the Libertarian Party now, but um, not any of the major ones. So I thought that would be a nice way to, 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 to name a centre. I did that with Steve Baker. He's now a minister, uh, actually, Minister of State for Northern Ireland, which mm-hmm. is one of, the, one of the kingdoms of the United Kingdom. Um, and he's very Messian uh, or Cobden like. Um, mm-hmm. I see great parallels with them. And when actually, when you read. Um, Mises, in, in, in his various uh, books, does touch upon Cobden occasionally. Mm-hmm. And just in general, I mean, the again, to sort of underscore the, the achievement, it wasn't as if, you know, tariff rates were 62% and Cobden got them down to 58% or something. I mean, it was a pretty sweeping overhaul and also not because necessarily of like backroom dealings, but just like educating the public and just like, making the case for free trade so powerful that it was sort of irresistible. Absolutely. That's exactly what it was. And, and Robert Peel, so Robert Peel, who's the Tory leader, who was, you know, effectively set up to um, defeat these moves, does a very famous speech in the, in, in the House of Commons where basically the law of comparative advantages is um, enunciated very eloquently you know, in, 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 in straightforward, non-economic terms, if you know what I mean. When, when, and Peel just throws his papers down and surrenders and said, I can't defend this anymore, and switches, um, switches, switches sides. And that was really the, that was really the collapse when a, a number of the, one of the notorious then uh, came behind it and the aristocratic parties were then defeated. Mm-hmm. Um, so Pe- Peel is... Robert Peel is used as, as a traitor to the Tory uh, classes to the, and the aristocratic uh, privileges. But it was a complete and utter wipeout. And it established free trade um, going, it, well, it was the catalyst to establish free trade because then there were, then there were treaties. I and mean, if you look at the Cobden, um, I can't remember what it's called, Cobden Chevalier Treaty, I think it is, with France, it literally is one page. You know, that's it. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not like mountains of writing and books and, you know, oh, we were going to carve this little bit out for the, this section of the wine industry or this bit of the cheese industry. It's just, no, all barriers, finished, done. And, you know, the track record is Britain, you know, 
became the great the greatest power on earth at the time um, because of his foresight in 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 in, in, do, in doing that and spread and spread a lot of free trade around the world. So, right, yeah. and it's it's funny because you think of like an, an island nation that yeah they should really be in favor of commerce across the seas and whatever it seems like a no brainer in retrospect, but yeah, it did take you know Cobden and his allies to do that because the protectionist and, and at that point it was protectionism was more understandable than it is like in our day and age. And yet those fallacies still persist. Yeah. But it's all the same arguments when you, if you, if you ever have time to search up their speeches in the, in the house of houses of parliament, it's exactly the same. There's no, no difference between what we're arguing, what, what we're arguing and how we're arguing. Um, so, you know, unfortunately you have to keep re, um, reinventing it, don't you? Uh, each time, you know, so the tariffs that um, Trump has put on with China and, you know, the, um, the, so often people will say to me, but Toby, Toby, you're, you know, you're such a free marketeer. Why don't you support the European Union? Well, the European Union has a lovely single market inside it. And don't get me wrong. It is wonderful, you know, inside the single market, if you're on the inside. Right. Um, but the, uh, the barriers to entry that they then put up for outsiders Means it's a great big protection racket um, for 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 all, for all the industries on the inside. So uh, you know, whilst yes, great, you know, free internal market across you know four hundred million people, you know, would be do tick the box. Um, the reality is, it's more detrimental to my opinion, more detrimental to to, to world, world trade because it has it then erects huge barriers, not on. Um, not on tariffs, or you know, they're, they're they're very good on that front, but they're um, they're much more subtle. You know, it's it's all it's all done on um, you know, our our rules. You know, X number of hundreds of thousands of pages say this, and you must exactly replicate it if you wish to trade with us on a free trade basis. Um, so then they're, they're non-tariff barriers that they um, that they concentrate that they concentrate on, which I think is a huge detriment. To, uh, to actually Europe itself, to Europeans, um, and formally to ourselves um, when, we, when we were part of it. Well, yeah, I remember like during the Brexit arguments that one of the standard ones for the, you know, the anti-Brexit people was to say, oh, yeah, Britain might be able to renegotiate, UK would be able to renegotiate with the rest of the world or whatever, but you're going to lose access to the European markets then. And it's like, well, so doesn't that prove that it's not a free trade block if, if they're going to lose access if you're out of the club? So they're kind of like proving the point that this is certainly not laissez-faire uh, free trade, all things considered. Um, so you mentioned a minute ago, uh, Sir Robert Peel. So people who read Mises see that name come up a lot because of the... Um, the attempt to inf- to enforce sound money in banking, yes, and then and, and the way Mises told it is they just they made an intellectual mistake. Like in other words, they were on the right track when they were trying to limit the um, issue of bank notes that were unbacked. Let's call. I'm, I'm obviously dumbing this down a little bit, Toby, but they they didn't understand at the time, just intellectually, that that checkbook deposits were also you know economically equivalent to uh, uh, bank notes, like you know paper that trades hand to hand. And that was the flaw. And so the the act did not stop the business cycle and it was viewed as a failure. And Mises was saying, well, you know, it was just they kind of had this wrong. But in general, the spear that was correct. And, and you personally have had a lot to do with 
versions of that approach. Um, so I don't, do you want to talk about that a bit? Yes. So that's the, that was the debate uh, that was known as the currency school versus the banking school, which culminated in the currency school winning, essentially, or as you say, it's sort of partially won, mm-hmm. um, and the Bank, Char- Bank Charter Act of um, uh, 1844, I think it was, Sir, Sir Robert Peel uh, put that through, and you had to have um, all, all, notes, all notes issued um, back to 100% uh, by gold. Uh, gold, silver, I think it was a bimetal um, standard. Now, anyway, commodity money. Um, and yeah, as, M- as Mises points out, well, the job was the job was done, yes, tick box. Um, but then, you know, it's like when you, I don't know, with, with a, you know, when you push down on a mattress, you know, boom, you go there and boom, up, 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 up it comes over there. So then the check, check, checks took over uh, in, the, in, in the place of uh, the, 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 roll, the roll of notes. But I'd just like to I'll wind back slightly before that. Um, in Manchester, uh, which is, um, as I said, it was the start of the Industrial Revolution, or, or Lancashire is the county um, that it's associated with. Um, so in Lancashire, they didn't have a note issue by private banks in the, in the, dawn, in the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. They relied on bills of exchange. Um, and so... The, the bills of exchange then was um, like I suppose. Do you call, do you have receivable finance? I think you do in America. Accounts receivable finance, or we we'd call it here invoice factoring, whereby a a manufacturer, for example, would sell mm-hmm. would um, sell his um, inventory uh, forward, or or sell his inventory even to 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 you know ex customer somewhere else down in the country. And receive payment for it instantly in specie um, from from a local um, bank or, or bullion dealer, um, and then these bills uh, would then function as as money during that credit period by being assigned over to the next person, the next person, the next person who could then use them, and ultimately it, it, it's then settled. And the Manchester Bank, the Manchester traders, Lancashire traders, preferred and wanted to use bills of exchange all the time. But the Bank of England uh, comes along around the turn of the 1800s and starts um, interfering. Then ultimately it legislates, legislates, it it gets its parliamentary colleagues to legislate and then gets a a note um, privilege of issue. Um, in that area, then starts, and then well, it's not an outright privilege. What they what they did is they is they made it financially so uh, diff, so um, punishing to trade on bills of exchange that you're forced to change on notes. They did it by um, by taxation. Um, so the notes of circulate the bills of exchange, which were a hundred percent reserve medium. Uh, then, then, then die out. But the, orig- the original industrial revolution was founded on bills of exchange and not notes of issue um, by, by private banks. And then private banks or the state, the state-owned bank, the, the, the Bank of England. And then there's a whole series of boom-bust cycles where, where over-issuing of notes and you know, you know the usual, usual story. The, the credit credit induced boom bust cycles and the currency school uh, argue for 100% reserves and the banking school um, argue that 
that argue actually, and in fairness to them, they argue that you know the um, central, the, what becomes the central bank should butt out of it and just let the free, just let the county banks do all their all their notice shooting. Um, and um, you know, ultimately, the market will market will control that. But anyway, Peel wins, um, and the bank charter act, bank charter act is done, um, which gives gives one hundred percent reserves on reserves on notes. And then within a decade, you see another boom-bust cycle because the checks uh, then, then come into issue again. And because there's no fractional reserve uh, free rank, free banking in a, in a pure form, which might be able to, you know, be more uh, of a control mechanism in a, um, in a uh, business cycle environment, uh, it wasn't. So, um, you know, you got, you got boom-bust and we've had it, we've had it ever since. Um, enter Mises, who then preser- who then um, recommends a series of um, actions to move to 100% reserve. Hayek endorses him. Um, the Chicago School, um, including Milton, Milton Friedman, endorses a, a various proposals based around this, uh, as does Maurice Allais, uh, the French uh, Keynesian. Um, so all, school, all, schools of, all schools of thought uh, represented there. It's not. It's not a outlandish. These are wacko, anarcho-capitalist libertarians. Yeah. Can I can I just emphasize or underscore that, Toby? That yes. I mean, there was literally this thing called the Chicago Plan, and the, yeah. the only reason I'm emphasizing this is because in modern intra-Austrian arguments, like one of our favorite things to argue about is fraction reserve banking. You're, there's this notion that it's Murray Rothbard and his weirdo disciples that are in favor of hundred percent reserves and any other serious economist knows that modern bankings and whether fraction reserves are good or bad or what have you, that just, that's incorrect to, to castigate it is this fringe view. Cause like you said, this is, you know, it's clearly in Mises, um, you know, Hayek has nice things to say about it. Even Milton, uh, Irving Fisher, Fisher so, Milton Friedman, yeah. I mean, the whole raft of, of even Gary Becker in, in modern times. And as I said, the Keynesian economist as well, and there's one guy I read um, during the financial um, crisis, Larry Kotlikoff, um, yep, who, yep. who 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 does, he he desperately doesn't want to call it 100% reserve banking uh, because of for, for the issues that you've just it's, it's almost like saying you know I, I, I eat babies for for breakfast. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> he calls it anything other than 100% reserve banking, but that's what he's recommending. And then so Mervyn King, now Lord King, who was Governor of Bank of England. Um, several governors uh, ago is very very sympathetic uh, to, uh, to, to, towards it. So it's not um, a wacko daco, you know, Murray Rothbard weirdo libertarian thing. Yeah, it's very mainstream, um, and and one one should you know one one, one should always remember that. Um, you know, I I, I I made a proposal. Of course, no one's <laughs> of, of trying to pick some of the. The ideas uh, from all from all of those uh, schools to try and in, in the financial crisis, mm-hmm. because the great financial crisis. I thought, right, well, that is it. We're going to we're going to fall over, and the whole monetary system is going to collapse. Of course, I was wrong, because we embarked on a process of QE, which we're now seeing the consequences of, kind of writ large. Um, and you know, maybe, maybe these ideas will start getting getting uh, looked at again. Um, you know, at some point in time, 
I'm sure there will be. There must be a reckoning because you just cannot keep on borrowing from borrowing and minting. Um, you know, creating digital, um, you know, um, digital numbers out of, out of nowhere, and, and 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 expect the system to still all, all stay together. So at some point in time, we we will be faced with a with a financial reckoning, and we we'll have to we we'll have to look very closely at these alternative um, solutions. Well, yeah, and that leads to. By the way, just I don't want to be accused of misleading the opposite direction. So. Hayek and Milton Friedman, they wrote a lot of stuff on monetary reform. I'm not saying Hayek was always for 100% reserves his whole career. I'm just saying at times he supported things. So it's mm. like you say, it's not just this um, fringe view that only Rothbardians supported. Um, so, yeah, you you this leads into the, what I did want to ask you about in terms of right now where things stand. So in light of your recent remarks there, I, I think we both agree that what central banks have been doing you know, since 2008 – is unsustainable to, to use one word among others. And just where do you think things stand? Is it like they've just keep painting themselves into an ever tighter corner or, you know, because for one thing, I'm surprised it lasted this long and there's, you know, in retrospect, I can come up with the reasons of, of why my timing was off, but nonetheless, does, even though to me, it seems like how can, how long can they keep this thing going? You know, maybe they can keep it going another 20 years and I'm just too pessimistic. Yeah, I, I think look, Robert. At, um, in two thousand eight, I would have said it. That, that's why I wrote my banking reform proposal, mm-hmm. um, which was actually inspired more by Jesus Huerta de Soto's writing than than, um, than all of those others put together. Mm-hmm. Um, and we could probably talk through some of the technical because I, I can amend that today to um, to work with bit with cryptocurrencies. Okay, we might want to talk talk through sure. that. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but to answer your question, how long? Yeah, I, I really have no idea. I would have said it would have collapsed uh, by now. Um, and that taught me one really, really valuable lesson is never bet, bet on the macro. Um, and I think, he, interestingly, John Maynard Keynes, if you read his investment uh, history, it's wonderful, actually, because he starts off quite idealistically and he does bet the macro. Yeah, And uh, he does, starts doing reasonably well and then he virtually goes bust. He then reinvents himself and he becomes phenomenally successful, um, forgetting about the macro and doing bottom-up stock picking of value-orientated uh, value-orientated stocks. Uh, and he, um, he ends up uh, making a fortune for King's College Cambridge in the, in, the, in the endowment fund, which they still benefit from today, mm-hmm. and a personal net worth of, a, of an equivalent of 30, 30 million pounds. Um, which is extraordinary for a Cambridge professor. Sure. Yeah, so he, he was phenomenally successful as soon as he s- stopped actually in reality having <laughs> doing anything to do with the macro. Um, and I think that's what I'd advise anyone is uh, this economic um, conversation that, we're, that uh, we are having, you and I, uh, definitely don't use it for any investment um, <laughs> advice whatsoever because <laughs> um, I've no idea how, how it would go and um, – yeah, it, it could go on. How long could they sustain it? Well, with with fiat and with command, um, you know, you can you can theoretically sustain it forever, can't you? Um, you'll just be impo- you'll just be impoverishing people more more and more. Um, you know, how long will the people put up for it? I think that's the, that that that's the question. And do the people really understand it? 
So the, fir- the first round of QEs was, was fairly harmless for the people, wasn't it? Because it went straight into the banking system to, to repair their balance sheets. It was never spent. Um, it's the co- all the COVID stuff has actually been spent. And that's why it's transitioned through to inflation. And to, to a certain, certain extent, they've got to want it to happen because they've got to depreciate the, the real value of that debt burden. Mm-hmm. So they can do that and they can carry on doing that. And so, so long as they don't allow any alternative monies or any alternative ways of ever doing anything, they, then it's financial repression. And uh, more than ever, uh, on, the, on the kind of thought process that uh, the only way out out for all Western governments because we're all in the same, we're all in the same boat. You know, you know, you, you guys. Whenever I speak to Americans, it's oh, it's so ter- terrible what we're doing and blah 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 blah. And I kind of think, well, yeah, um, we're doing <laughs> we're doing even more terrible, and so is load of other load, load of other places. Um, so, but we can do, you can do that, and you can do financial repression if you control all the um, pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, which they pretty much do. Um, so they they can af- affect that through force. So, for example, here um, pension funds are forced to buy government dated bonds to match uh, liabilities. So, if those bonds are always going to be falling down in value, I mean they've fallen twenty seven percent in value this year. Great, take it off the pensioners. No, that's what they that's what they're doing. Um, and are the pensioners? You know, is is your grandma going to go out on the streets and go up up in arms and tear down the barricades? Uh, probably not. Um, so unfortunately, financial repression is, is I think, the, what I'm seeing going forward. Justice-wise, it should fall. But I don't think it will. I mean, in a, in a, something very radical has to happen for it to, for it to fall. Um, and they can, you know, I was, I was reading the other day, there's a very good um, economist called Russell Napier here, he's a financial economist and financial historian. He, he has... The Library of Mistakes in Edinburgh. It's an actual physical library where you where you can um, go and look up all the you know economic mistakes of uh, uh, of the past, and, and and he's wonderful. And he and he points out actually in in um, the Second World War, uh, a leading uh, member of this, one of the Scottish um, pension funds and life companies was sent to America. This is obviously before you know internet and trading instantaneously, and so on and so forth. And his purpose was to redeem entirely all British-owned holdings of American securities and replace them with government-issued gilts, bonds. Um, and he did that. Um, and that paid for the Lend-Lease, or start, helped pay for the Lend-Lease um, arrangements that America and Britain had set forward for, for you to help us in, in, in the Second World War before you became officially involved. Mm-hmm. So financial repression, I think, is uh, unfortunately, I think, I think that's where where it will go. Uh, I, don't, I don't think we will see a a reckoning moment, or I, or I can't see it going forward unless you have very enlightened um, leaders who who say, actually, I'm, I think it's morally wrong to play this game, uh, and I want to change the system, and this is this is this is how we do it. We move to something. You know, you could pick any of those plans, and there'd be a better option than we have today. Mm-hmm. Well, I, w- I would like to go back to something you said a minute ago, because yes, I, I want to ask you specifically. You alluded to your, you know, the proposal you had introduced, and then you're saying, and now you would be able to update that in light of some of the developments in crypto. So, do you want to speak to that a bit? 
Yes, thank you. Thank you. Well, well, crypto, as you know, is it's immutable, isn't it? It can't, you know, your little line of crypto, it can't be multiplied up into other things. Um, so in terms of in terms of its functionality, it can function very much like gold. Um, so I was just thinking, so in, in, in the original iteration of, of what I wrote for the Cobden Center, based on all those plans that we've mentioned, but particularly Jesus Huerto de Soto's plan, um, is that you could, in, in extremity, in a, in a, in, in a, in a financial collapse uh, situation, you could move on day one to nationalize the banking system and then you could take um, the creditors uh, who have demand deposits, IOUs, from the bank, and you could replace those uh, with, well, with now, you could replace those with Bitcoin or some, or some kind of cryptocurrency that you could make. As you know, central banks could make those, and you could then put a little constitution of, that limits the ability of anyone to make more of those units, so you have the same effect of, of a Bitcoin. Um, and that way, you, you've, you've, you've corrected the Peel Act. Now all demand deposits are, are 100% backed. They're bits of code, unique, indivisible bits of code. Um, originally, I thought it could be done, done with gold and you'd have a tremendous amount of uplift in pricing in gold. But you could do it off the bat with, um, with, with Bitcoin. And then on the other side of the balance sheet of the banks, you'll have the huge assets. And with those, with, with, with those assets, you could get the... You could get them slowly paid down over time. Over time, all the loans, you know, they get they get paid down, and they could pay they could pay off the national debt. They're big enough. The demand deposits are bigger than the national debt here. I don't know what it is in the United States of America. So over a period of, you know, if the average maturity is about five or six years um, on on the loans, you'll manage to pay off the national debt in the same time. Then moving forward. You then got the banks. You denationalised them. You put them back, and and the currency in circulation is 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 the is the crypto, um, which is indivisible. So it can only then 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 the banks form the role that a lot of people think they do, uh, which is genuine intermediaries between savers and borrowers. And if you want to loan your crypto out, you you lose you lose control over it for the period of time of the loan, and then it gets repaid to you back, presumably with principal plus interest being a bit more crypto and you see that that's the way you could you could move to a full reserve system which will have the added added benefit of also being able to pay off uh the national debt at the same time so you have a complete reset and then move to move to foot move, move to full reserve banking okay well that's very interesting so uh, for it just make sure some of the you know, listeners aren't getting lost in the weeds here the, the basic issue is right now, the way it works is, yes, banks still connect savers and borrowers. They act as credit intermediaries, as you're saying, but the but they also form another function or serve another function of uh, just safekeeping and convenience that, oh, I don't want to walk around with $10,000 in my pocket in currency or you know 10,000 pounds. And so I put it in the bank for safekeeping and then I go around town with my card that I can just swipe or write checks on. And so those two functions can be analytically distinct, conceptually distinct. And for somebody like Rothbard or anybody in favor of hundred percent reserve banking, they should be. And so if you're going to lend money to the bank because you want to earn interest on it, 
that's a separate thing. And then you don't have access to that money. You've relinquished control. Then they go lend it out to somebody else who wants to buy a house or whatever. And then, you know, so, but by merging those two things where I go deposit money in a bank and I think I still have it there in my checking account. And then the bank lends that out to somebody else, to a borrower. That's the sense in which the bank is creating money out of thin air. And that's precisely the thing that you're trying to, you know, your proposal is trying to get, get rid of. Yeah, well, with 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 crypto, it gets it gets rid of Ethereum because crypto can't be um, it can it can only be a bailment, so it can't be a credit instrument at all. So um, you know, to, to 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 be clear, there, I can say Toby has ten bits of crypto. Um, he's going to lend to Rob for a year, but I don't see it as a I I, I don't see it in my Bank account still, yeah. I, I I see you as a um, as a debtor now uh, to me, and in a year's time, I expect repayment of that. That comes back to me. Therefore, the bank doesn't have that. The bank doesn't credit you. Um, so that's the problem, isn't it? When when I, if I have if I have the ten, um, the, and I lend it to you in the conventional banking system. You have the ten as well, and then we both have the claims to the same ten. Yeah, under a, under a crypto system, that crypto has to physically go. It has to go to you. You have to have full control over it. Um, in the in the digital world, you are now the owner of it until that duration of the loan expires. And that's how you could move to move, move to um, full, full reserve banking. But you know, for the but the be- but the benefits for the for the people as other than other than them having an end to credit induced boom and busts is that you is that you you have this the other side of the balance sheet of the conventional bank uh, which is the um, the loan side the lo- the loan suddenly suddenly the, these banks will just have assets they'll have no liabilities that you've just nationalised so you use those assets to do something good pay off the debt that's, that's being created. And all this silliness over a over over a period period of time, and then close those functions down, and then you're only left with banks that have um, a bailment function. Well, they have a safekeeping function and a bailment function. Um, and cap and capitalism, you know, the birth of cap the birth of modern capitalism in the industrial revolution, and that's the reason why I mentioned it was founded on bills of exchange, which are 100 uh, percent reserved. At, at all points in time, and there's no reason why modern capitalism couldn't exist on exist on that basis going forward. So, I think you know it'd be lovely to find people who would who would dig in, you know, um, politicians who would d- dig into this more, legislators um, who'd become more receptive to it. There are one or two in the United Kingdom, and we actually got um, on the statute book. Um, I think it was in either 2012 or 2013, Douglas Carswell, who was a parliamentarian at the time, and Steve Baker, the gentleman I mentioned, who's now a minister um, in, the, in the current government, um, they did get it put on uh, statute, the mechanism uh, for being able to do this. Um, so it, that does exist uh, here if we, if, we, if we ever need, needed, to do, needed to do that, not the crypto bit, but with... Um, you know, at, at the time, it was uh, suggested using something like gold or, or commodities. It seems to me, and I just want to get your reaction, and I, we're coming up here on the 
on the clock, so we got to wrap things up. But I just want to ask you, is it because you talked about before about financial repression and yes, the government could use various ways of leaning on private sector actors to sort of help them clean up the mess the government created. But I mean, in the limit, if if interest rates are spiking, I mean, they, they can't force the whole world to just buy their bonds. It, it would seem difficult to completely repress spiking interest rates. And then ultimately, you know, currencies do collapse like in Zimbabwe or whatever. I mean, that's that sort of thing happens. Um, it, is there in your mind, is that not a realistic concern for like the larger, more advanced economies that just an outright collapse? I, I think I think it's high. I think it's highly unlikely. Because. They'll, they've got all these levers, levers of control, and they are not um, absolutely um, mental. Um, yeah, right. That's they, they know enough to stop printing and let things calm down at some point. Yeah, and we, we're going through that process here right now, mm-hmm. um, where, whereby the bond markets have been extremely shocked mm-hmm. by the current government's plans to cap energy prices and fund it by 150 billion of um, bond issue, mm-hmm. and, and well, the bond the bond markets were briefed about this, and they thought it was okay. They then add on, uh, we're going to lower lower taxes from. This shows how sensitive it is. So keep 150 billion in mind. There, we're going to add on a tax cut for um, the rich. Um, from 45% down, for the marginal rate from 45% is going to be brought down to 40%. The impact of that is 2 billion. Um, and that tipping point, that 2 billion, um, sent a, a run on the pound um, and sent, a, sent the bond, um, the, the yields on the bond spiking uh, to nearly, nearly 6% from low, low, two, low two, twos or 3%, which is, of course, disastrous for homeowners. And people looking to redo their mortgages and for pension funds trying to match their um, match their liabilities. The pension funds um, collectively went to the Bank of England and said, "We are effectively going to go bust um, if we have to pay all our margin calls." Um, on um, and this was only a few days only a few days ago. And the Bank of England, uh, from wanting to go down a QT path, you know they want to do good, has now gone back to agreeing to do QE. Uh, to the tune of 65 billion. Um, but that message out to the marketplace has then calmed everything down. And in fairness, they've only done three, three and a bit billion of QE. Um, and today it was only 20, 22 million pounds. So I think just the threat of it, you see, can then bring the bond market back into discipline. But it does require the politicians. Now, the politicians today, 7.20 this morning, then removed the uh, 45% to 40, 40% marginal tax um, uh, um, suggestion. They, remo- they removed it, so they won't, they won't, imp- they won't implement it. So, so just that marginal thing was enough to really spook the marketplace, despite the, the inflammatory bit to me is the $150 billion sure. in the first place. So, but there is a point, yeah. And as long as they, as long as they back off, um, then I think they can then – yeah, why why couldn't you continue on that path of financial repression? I, I, I hate to sound uh, very doom and gloomy on the. I know we're in the closing bit, but um, I, I think we're going to see much more of that. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, you might be. Right. It, the other thing too that's ironic about that 
anecdote you just told was that in terms of borrowing money in order to fund something, cutting marginal income tax rates from 45 down to 40 seems like a pretty effective use, you know, from a supply side perspective like that, in a sense, a lot of that would pay for itself. But of course, that's not how a lot of people would analyze it. Yeah. And no, they wouldn't. Um, but the, 100, the 150 billion, though, I think is very, not only just that's a huge amount for this economy, you know, we're a two two point two trillion economy mm-hmm. and 150 billion of borrowing already when we've got, I don't know, our deficit is something like um, 200 billion this year. So it's a, it's a sizable increase in, in the deficit, just I think is already, you know, that size, massive, et cetera. Um, it's not actually, it's in danger actually of not, like all government policies, it sounds well-meaning, but it's, it's probably going to do the opposite of what it intends to do. So yes, it will cap, cap the gas prices and the electricity prices here, which are in extreme um, distress at the moment. And But you know, when you do that, the incentive for the householders here and for industry to then say, I'll tell you what, I'm going to turn the thermostat down and I'm going to put a few more layers on and do some very practical things to reduce my demand because gas gas is in extreme short supply here on the Europe, European continent because of what's going on in, in well, so 10 years of bad energy policies, but triggered but, uh, mm-hmm. the trigger moment is the Ukraine um, ru- 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 Russia war. I don't think we'll adjust, I don't think many people will adjust their their habits and, and we'll end up with it. so again today they've now released a, a, an emergency um, the gas authorities have reached an emergency order saying we will have to close down bits of industry. Can you imagine this is this is the sixth largest economy in the world yeah and, and we are being told we're going to have blackouts um, and we're going to you know we're going to have schools closing. Uh, for certain parts of the uh, of the week, and da di da di da, you know, it's just just terrible. So I don't think their policy will even be effective, and th- and it will cost us a hundred billion hundred billion of borrowing on the never never. So it's, it's the typical government um, mess up. Yeah. Right, and then when it doesn't work, the free market will be blamed for sure. Like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's those nasty it's those nasty energy companies, right? So, right. Reliance on fossil fuels and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. That's right, and the, the the over in the continental Europe, which we're geographically part of, but not part of politically, as you know, since since Brexit, what they're doing there, they're doing a price cap, and they're doing um, more um, uh, windfall taxes mm-hmm. on the energy company. So you know, you, you imagine if you're if you're sitting there as um, uh, a CEO of EDF, you know, one of the French. Uh, bigger energy companies and you're thinking well what's my incentive to go and invest in more supply um if all i'm going to do is get it taken away by windfall taxes they they must be scratching their heads thinking well you know what i'm not going to bother so i don't don't know whether any no no they're all shouting more supply more supply more supply where's it going to come from yeah i've got a good one for you too then toby so here I don't think this has been like formally insisted upon yet, but there was reports going around um, Bloomberg and whatever that Biden administration officials were meeting with large U.S. refiners and saying, hey, we're concerned here that uh, you're shipping a lot of your gas uh, overseas and your inventories are very low while you're earning record profits. And so we may impose a you know, windfall tax or whatnot. And we uh, might impose a requirement that you have to raise your inventory levels. 
So if you think about it, the issue is there's not enough gas getting to the pump right now for U.S. drivers. If they are now just change the rule and say you have to bulk up your inventories, where's that going to come from? That means less is going to reach the pump. So it will raise prices. You know what I mean? But they're thinking, oh, because in the normal times, you know, if there's big inventory, that means prices tend to be like they're, you know, mixing up correlation and causation and thinking if we just force them to raise their inventory and more is now going to sit in warehouses or in, you know, silos or whatever then that means there's more for drivers when no, it's the exact opposite, but there you go. Yeah. I, I just don't know where they, they almost think they can like pluck it out of your, you can pluck it out of your top pocket. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> it's done. It's, it's extraordinary. And these things need, these things need years. I mean, years and years of investment. And then the other thing they've got to think about is oh, I know what's going to happen as soon as after this crisis is over, it'll all be back to wind and, um, and solar and it'd be sod you fossil fuel guys. So um, why on earth would you invest anywhere? Why would you put uh, invest in a distillery, which is going to take ten years, ten years to you know get planning permission, build, and start paying start paying for itself? You just wouldn't. I, I think we that that I mean that that is at least as dangerous as the monetary stuff that we've been talking about. That's probably the subject of a completely different podcast um, webcast. Um, no, it's probably. I don't know whether you guys at Mises has covered energy, but that that really needs to be be addressed. Oh yeah, we've yeah we've had um, Alex Epstein on and and some others. Yeah, Jeff and I cover that a lot. That yes, it is amazing. And, and as you mentioned a minute ago, I mean the there was a full blown energy crisis in Europe even last summer with natural gas prices that were like six hundred percent higher. So yeah, Pre-dates, this isn't Putin. Yeah, I mean Putin yeah. is a, is a convenient scapegoat. This is a ten year crisis in brewing that was showing it. As you say, eighteen months ago. Yeah. Okay. Well, why don't we wrap it up on that cheery note? Um, so, t- Toby, for people who want to like follow you or to see more about the you know, the Cobden Center and things you're doing on, where should they go? Uh, well, um, Twitter probably. Uh, dare I say it? Um, I love love and hate the media medium. Um, I think I'm at Toby Baxendale. I think that's it. Uh, so, yeah post things occasionally from now and then. Um, and also the Cobden Centre at, at the Cobden Centre. Max Rangeley posts, posts things there. Steve Baker, the MP, is always a good one to uh, to follow as well. Although I, I, I suspect now he's a minister, he has to be much more guarded in, in, in what he says. Um, but, you know, he's very sympathetic. Um, yeah, I, I, was, I would... Uh, yeah. So yes, those mediums, or or reach out to me direct. You know, my, I've got a contact uh, note on the um, on the website, and I'll, I'm happy to you know deal with anybody who's got an inquiring mind and is polite. I bet you we have at least a handful of people that fit that description following. So <laughs> we'll go ahead and give Toby a, uh, a note if you want to learn more. Well, thank you, Toby, for being our guest. Uh, fascinating as always. Folks, uh, thank you for tuning in, and Jeff will be back in the saddle next time. Until then, we'll see you later. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. And in the meantime, you can find more content like this at Mises.org.